Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. The addiction leapt out immediately from within the cage of him, an animal in hibernation bound to wake up angry one day, desperate to smoke and smoke and smoke and smoke. This program features the work of 2017 writer Steph Kesey. Curator Jordan Imani Keith sat down with her for an interview. You're writing a memoir for your Jack Straw Writers Project. Will you tell me what it's about? Yeah, so it is about the last six months to a year of my dad's life. He, I was 22 years old, so it was about 12, 13 years ago, and he spiraled up into a very intense mania and dropped into a depression and... Within six months, he was staring out his office in the Columbia Tower to staring out the same view at Harborview Psych Ward. And then six more months, he hung himself in a in our kitchen um, from a ladder that led to a reading loft above the kitchen. So that's what the memoir is about. But... That's really plot-oriented, and though because so much happens with mania and there's so many characters that necessarily come on board, doctors and social workers and pharmacists and neighbors, and but it's not, to me, a plot book. It, it's, it's basically about my friendship with my dad. When I read your work and— in being encouraged by your bravery to talk about it, I thought how important it is to have the conversation of how a life can change and then change other lives. Will you tell me how you began to be a writer? Is this the genesis of your work as a writer, or had you been writing before this? I come to writing from a decade-long career in the visual arts, and I've been working in large-scale sculptural installation. My last big show was made out of 3,000 pounds of Crisco and wax. So when I say big, we're talking big, (laughs) um, either installed with a crane or a forklift. And though I see the work as really similar thematically, the craft is so much different. Sculpting and writing are are different crafts. So though I see it as a continuation of the same pursuit, this is the first time I, I will come out with something written. For many years, I was just writing little scraps and memories down on papers that I would lose, and I collaborated for a really long time with an artist, a woman named Erin Pollock, and she's also a dear friend, which happens when you lock yourself in a room and make art with somebody for many, many years. And she started collecting the little scraps and said, 
you got to write this. But I, I look back at that now as I think with time, memories fade and there was kind of like this grasping of trying to hold on to bits of that story. So putting it together, there's still this kind of like scrapbook aspect to remembering somebody in that way. But to find the through lines, to find the themes and threads is is a really beautiful process in a, in a way. So, yes, this is my first time writing for writing, but this isn't my first time processing through creating. Mm-hmm. So you say that your film and sculptural rap background deeply inform your writing. How do you tap into that other side of that same process, like to bring something into form. I, this is about your dad and your story with your dad, right? So, How do you bring him into form for us? I'm really interested, and in my sculpture work, I think this is really true. I'm, I'm really interested in moments where the brutal and the beautiful lay right next to each other. And I think in the sculpture work that I was doing, we would sculpt fairly realistic life-size sculptures of humans out of materials that melt at different temperatures and then destroy them in ways that kind of like blew them apart and um, film them. And then the ephemeral sculptures would be shown kind of coming back together and and it would be a really kind of brutal process but um also beautiful and filled with lots of color and movement and i think certainly any disease and and definitely a mental illness hitting a family it is a really brutal undoing and dynamite to a, a family structure but within that there's moments of real tenderness. I, th- I think with any disease, really, because you have people at their most vulnerable and the love that's required to overcome something like that is the glue of families in that in those moments. And in my writing, I look look for that is, you know, yeah, the shit storm is happening, but what are the human moments that come out of that? What do you hope will happen from someone who has a chance to read your work or hear you read? What what do you hope will happen for them? I hope that I'm brave enough and good enough to render the characters with enough specificity to make them come alive in some sense. And certainly, if that's not for the reader, it's it's definitely for myself, because I, th- I think that's one of the more painful aspects of memoir, and, and many memoirs are heavy with grief. But, you know, no matter how much I write, no matter how many scenes or how many descriptions or how apt and perfect they are, I'll never get my dad back. I'm never going to hug him again. I'm never going to smell him again. But 
I do want to make something beautiful out of it. What advice have you received that's helped you in writing a memoir? Or what authors or things have given you the strength to to write this very difficult story? This is a major step for me to admit that this is a memoir. I have been writing this book in secret for a long time. So one, to admit that I was writing a book was just horrific because I just like, oh, oh, God, you're writing a book? Like, oh, <laughs> uh, and I I think I sort of thought that it was a novel for a long time. And every time I kept cutting these sort of tricky, smart conceits that I had, the book just kept getting better, and it kept on getting closer to my heart. So I personally would don't want to read a smart book about this subject. I would rather read a book from the heart than the mind. Now we'll hear a selection from Steph's live reading. When I got home at 8 a.m., the house was quiet, and the skylights were blown out with sunshine. Two rectangles glowed on the slate tiles that ran down the hall from the front door to the kitchen and back. A popsicle sounded good, some sugar first thing in the morning to cure my hangover. When I got to the kitchen, my dad was standing with his back to me. The sliding glass door was pushed open 10 inches. His heels were still on the hardwood floor, but his toes cantilevered onto the back deck. Technically, he was out of, outside. Sort of. It stinks, I said, my head inside the yawning mouth of the freezer. Cool air exhaled against my chest and face. I searched through frozen peas and ice cream. Ziplocs of my mom's frozen soups were labeled in Sharpie. Her teacher's handwriting was clear. Tomato soup, February 20th. Cauliflower, March 10th. Potato leek, April 7th. Chicken tortilla, May 2nd. Gazpacho, June 18th. After June, the date stopped. Another way to mark her absence. I grabbed a raspberry popsicle, pushed the cellophane into a skirt around the stick. No smoking in the house, I said. It's frickin' disgusting. My dad's hair was greasy. It cowlicked into a flat disc on the back of his head. He inhaled in shallow, desperate pulls. His exhale was nothing like the sexy, purposeful plumes I knew from movies. A shapeless, gray fog hung around his head, then dissipated toward the backyard. It was lush with summer back there. The fig tree was full with large, waxy leaves like green elephant ears. The flower pots burst with blooms, hydrangeas, dahlias, peonies, rhododendrons. Ivy grew up the trunk of the maple tree, its canopy shading the garden from the summer heat. A pair of navy blue dockers hung baggy and wrinkled off his frame. He hadn't changed his clothes in a week. Tight fabrics made him sweaty and claustrophobic that summer. He wore an oversized jersey, XXL when he usually wore L. His skin was sallow, 
and standing there in that mesh fabric, he looked less like a man and more like a ghost caught in a butterfly net. He put his cigarette out in an old paper coffee cup that had gone pulpy with rainwater, then thickened into a soup of dissolving maple leaves from the fall before. The cherry sizzled hot in the brown sludge, then extinguished with a small spire. I bit into my popsicle. The cold was painful against my front teeth. You know, I said, drawing an imaginary stripe down the front of my top lip with my pointer finger. You look like Hitler like that. Six months of smoking had stained the snow-white bristles of his mustache into an ugly urine yellow, a line from nose to mouth. It was a mean thing to say. It was also true. But he was the one who programmed our first computer to say in a late 80s digital voice, I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go with boys that do. He was the one who said smoking is a sign of weakness. He was the one who said as we trolled the neighborhood in search of for sale signs and inquired about the price of local real estate, as soon as you get cigarette smoke in that carpet, you've instantly devalued that property. But once he started, he was back up to his grad school consumption within a week. A pack a day, Marlboro Reds. The addiction leapt out immediately from within the cage of him, an animal in hibernation bound to wake up angry one day, desperate to smoke and smoke and smoke and smoke. 30 years without a cigarette, and now butts littered the garden, a welcome mat of flattened filters at the side door, brown butts sprouting from flower pots. The sweet, caustic stench of smoked, coke-soaked cigarettes off-gassed from an aluminum pop can in his car. It sat in the cup holder, and on hot days, it cooked the air thick. Back then, I hated it. More. I hated him for it. But at least the cigarettes got him up off the couch. It was a sad purpose for a day, but it was a purpose. Cigarettes got him into his car and drove him up to buy a pack from the Ethiopian family that owned the Quickie Mart on 65th. It was proof that he was still breathing. In order to smoke, you have to breathe. I see that now, but back then I said, it's disgusting. If you have to smoke, at least go back to prison. By prison, I meant the dog run in the back corner of the yard, a concrete slab with a six-foot-tall chain-link fence around the perimeter. When my brother and I were little, we played cops and robbers back there, locked each other up, staged prison breaks, scaled the walls, our little feet climbing the chain link. If my dad had to smoke, he could do it back there. He grunted. I walked back down the hall toward the bathroom. The door to his bedroom was open. His bedroom? No. Their bedroom. Their bed. Their comforter. Their fireplace. Their dresser. Their closet. My mom's absence swelled to fill the house that summer. Everyday objects took on a stubborn weight. The antique cookie jar the shared electric toothbrush with multicolor replacement heads, yellow and green for her, blue and red for him. This house, these objects, this life wasn't his, and yet it wasn't theirs either.
not anymore. My eye caught on a strange light in the bedroom, the metallic blue glare of his Italian motor scooter. Its skinny tires sank into the oriental rug. There are so many things I missed out of obliviousness, fatigue, denial, hope. The question seems so obvious now. How exactly does a motor scooter get into a bedroom? The night before, my dad roots around in the garage. It has long since been converted into a storage unit. Cardboard boxes teeter in columns. He pops the scooter off its kickstand, pushes it through the grass in the front yard. He passes concrete steps that lead to the front door, a red rhododendron bush, the rose bushes on the west side of the house. He gets to the side gate, rests the scooter heavy on his hip. He pulls a rope. The once white fibers are frayed, soft and dirty with use. The rope unlatches the lock on the other side of the fence. A string of bell clanks as he enters the backyard. The motion detector senses movement and a green floodlight turns on, tinges his skin the color of seasick. The gate latches behind him. The fence is six feet tall, the backyard a private space away from the neighbor's view. The scooter is unruly on the uneven brick path. It jerks back on the root of an Italian plum tree. The task is physical. He leans into it with the full weight of his body, pushes harder and harder. He is sweating now. His teeth clench. A bead of sweat quivers on the tip of his nose. His feet slip against a gravel patch. The tires have a diamond pattern on the tread. As he pushes and pushes, the tires press juice from the dropped rotten plums and trace an almost invisible line of purple plum sugar diamonds behind him. Thump, thump, up two stairs and onto the deck, then through the sliding glass door and into the kitchen. A wobbling curve around the family room couch, down the hallway and into his bedroom. Their bedroom. He rolls up a towel, closes the door, and seals it at the bottom. He inserts a small silver key into the ignition. He turns the ignition on and gets into bed. He is alone. He has trouble falling asleep. The engine purrs like a large, dangerous cat. The metallic chattering of scooter parts, screws loosening, rotating out from their sockets. A strong, seductive desire puddles inside of him, dark as diesel. It's not so much that he wants to die, but to kill the pain. The taste of exhaust coagulates into a thick ball of mucus in his throat. It will all be gone by morning. Mercy, mercy, please. Morning arrives. The summer has been hot. The slatted shutters on the bedroom windows slice the sun into parallel blades. He wakes up. He opens his eyes. The light is painful, stabbing. He touches his face. 
is he alive? He is. He feels like shit. His head hurts, blood still pumps through his body and pounds low, deep beats against the drum of his temples. He is hung over from the fumes. He hates himself, maybe even more now. That, what a pathetic sad sack. What a loaf. He fails at everything, even dying. He grows angry now. That fucking gas tank too small to snuff the life out of him. He gets up, his hair flattened, greasy and unwashed against his scalp. He walks down the hall through the kitchen, opens the sliding back door. He would go out to prison to smoke, but he just can't today. He hates himself for so many things. Smoking in the house is just one of them. He lights a cigarette, exhales through his nose. His daughter comes in. He can hear her leather shoes approach, a soft sole pitter-patter on the slate hallway toward the kitchen. She's still wearing her waitress getup, that black pencil skirt and a brown chiffon shirt with magenta flowers. The v-neck is deep and slips off her tan shoulder. Her clavicle is bony beneath. Where was she last night? It looks like she's been walking, her cheeks pink with life. She is already sweaty this early in the morning, last night's mascara smudged into black crescents under her eyes. She opens the freezer. She's talking idly about something, eating something. He can feel her eyes on him. Disgusting, she says. I am the daughter. Smoke, sometimes I think now. Smoke, smoke, smoke. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production. The 2017 curator of this program is Jordan Imani Keith. This episode of Sound Pages was produced by Alyssa Keene and Daniel Gunther. Recording engineers are Daniel Gunther, Joel Maddox, and Tom Stiles. Narrator is Alyssa Keene. And executive director of Jack Straw Cultural Center is Joan Rabinowitz. Theme music by the Steve Griggs Ensemble, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology, available for purchase, and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>